Well, our sermon text, uh, we're continuing our series through the book of Mark. Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. And I'll ask that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you reveal Christ to us in these pages. We ask that you would, again, help us in our weakness, work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Well, in the previous passages that we've been going through in Mark, the recent passages, uh, Jesus showed, he's been showing his almighty power over all things, is what he's been doing in these last two chapters. We saw in the end of Mark chapter 4 that Jesus showed his almighty power over a storm, over a storm that threatened the lives of the disciples. Remember, even these seasoned fishermen were afraid for their lives and woke him up in the back of the boat, and he stilled the storm by speaking to it. Uh, He showed his power over the forces of hell in the text we looked at last week when he cast out a host of demons that might have numbered in the thousands, if you can imagine such a thing, from that man who dwelled among the tombs in the first 20 verses of our chapter, Mark 5. Well, now we're going to a section in Mark 5 where Jesus is going to show us his power, his almighty power over sickness, that's our passage this morning, and even over death in verses 35 to 41, which Lord William will look at next Lord's Day. Well, so if you, were to, if you were to sit down maybe this afternoon or sometime and just read through Mark 4 through Mark 5, the whole two chapters in one sitting, uh, and think of them and read through them as, as a unit, you'd get the distinct impression, I think, that this has been a rather long day, or maybe a day or two, for Jesus and his disciples. In chapter 4, it doesn't read like it's a whole day because it's such a brief brief account. 
But in chapter 4, Jesus spent what looks to be an entire day teaching the crowds. Remember, he's preaching to them in parables, the parable of the sower and other parables. And in Mark 4.35, right before that storm, Mark says, uh, he says, on that day, the same day as he was teaching, right? On that day when evening had come, that that was when Jesus told the disciples that he wanted them to go across to the other side of the sea. So he ministered all day, gets in the boat at night, travels across to the other side, and encounters that great storm. They woke him up and interrupted his sleep to still that storm. Well, when he gets across to the other side, it's the same day. It's in the same day in that evening when the storm overtook the boats. Uh, it's not any wonder, I think, why Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. He was tired. He was exhausted. Well, wait, there's more, right? Mark chapter 5, verse 2. There he says that no sooner did Jesus step out of the boat on the other side. We don't know how long the trip was, right? Uh, but right after he gets out of the boat, his foot basically just hits dry land. And, and Mark says it in verse 2, immediately that demoniac confronted him. He saw him from a distance. He ran up to him and fell at his feet. Well, remember the story from last Sunday. Jesus delivered that man from Satan and from sin. And what did Jesus get as thanks for all of his trouble? The townspeople begged him to leave. So what did he do? Got right back in the boat and the other boats that were with him and went right back from where they came. Sounds like a pretty long long couple days you must still be exhausted well that that's what sets the stage for us for what happens in our text here this morning what, what does mark tell us in verse 21 the first verse of our passage he writes and when jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea like it, he just gets back and there's the crowd again Jesus can't get away from the crowds. You get the feeling that that's why he went across to the other side, at least one of the reasons in the first place. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus here. The crowd not only gathers around him, but as we're going to see, they start following him. It's not bad enough that he gets off the boat and they kind of surround him. When he goes to help Jairus, what do they do? They follow right along with him, crowding him not giving him any space whatsoever. Well, here in our passage in verses 21 to 34, you'll notice that Mark introduces us to a man named Jairus, who he says was one, quote, one of the rulers of the synagogue. So he was an important person. There's a lot of speculation about what that meant to be a ruler of the synagogue. Some people liken that to being a deacon, someone who took care of the synagogue property and was responsible for it. Either way, he was an important person what tells us that he had a little daughter who was at the point of death the, the Greek is a strange uh, way of putting it it's it basically says she has her end she has her eschatos her end that's how close she is to death and so he comes to Jesus falls at his feet another common theme in these two chapters someone falling at Jesus feet and implores him to do something come do what lay hands on her You've got to come quick. She, she doesn't have long. You can imagine as a father, he wouldn't dare leave her side for a moment except for Jesus, the one, the one whom he knew could, could heal her. He says to lay hands on her so that she might be made well and live. So what does Jesus do? He, right away, he starts going 
going along with him. But he's delayed somewhat, isn't he? That's really what our text is. Our text is the delay. Our text is the, uh, the thing that got in the way. And he's delayed by someone who he's going to refer to in the last verse of, the, of our text as a, by another daughter. He uses that word. It's, a, it's not the diminutive, not little daughter, but he uses the term for her daughter. So he's going to help one little daughter, and he has to stop and help another that he calls daughter. And she's in desperate need of healing as well. And Jesus, Mark turns our attention to his interactions with this unnamed woman. Jairus, we hear his name. This woman that we do, we do not. And, you know, really, Mark doesn't pick back up the story of Jairus' daughter until later on in the passage. And, you know, by, if you've read that part of the text, at that point, it seemed like it was too late, didn't it? That little delay, we don't, this, this delay doesn't seem that long, although to Jairus it must have seemed like an eternity. And word came, as we're going to see next time, that it was too late, or it seemed like it was too late. Our passage uh, probably seemed like quite an untimely interruption. You could probably forgive Jairus if he was standing there thinking, oh, you know, if you just hadn't stopped to help this woman, couldn't you have stopped on the way back? Couldn't you have helped her? Later, well, in the rush to get to Jairus's house, you know, it, it might have seemed all too easy for this poor suffering woman to get lost in the crowd. And yet that's not what, what happens. She mattered enough to Jesus to make time for her, and so we're going to do likewise. We're going to make time for her account and not try to squeeze it in in dealing with the other account of Jairus's daughter as well. And we're going to see three things, hopefully, from our text. We're going to see first the fountain of blood. The fountain of blood, secondly, the fear of the Lord, and thirdly, the faith that saves. So a fountain of blood, the fear of the Lord, and the faith that saves. So the first thing that you and I see in our text is a fountain of blood. Kind of sounds like an old classic hymn title. I was tempted to pick that for our closing hymn, but I didn't. Uh, you know, that, that may sound like an odd description for this woman's illness. We don't really know exactly what it was. The King James Version puts it this way in verse 29 when it talks about her fountain the fountain of her blood being dried up. The fountain of her blood being dried up. Now the word there, which if you read in the ESV, it says the flow, which it sounds more normal, right? But uh, the word really is fountain or spring. It's the same word that James uses in James chapter 3, verse 11, when he talks about a spring pouring forth either fresh water or salt water. It's, it's the regular word for a spring or for a fountain of, of water. So, you know, Mark, des Mark describes her as having suffered from, quote, a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 long years. We, again, we don't know exactly what was wrong with her. We don't know if this is internal hemorrhaging. We don't know if it had any external bleeding to it or, or both. Um, we don't really know, so we shouldn't speculate. But what we do know is that it was quite serious and that it must have been awfully painful, whatever it was. Twice the ESV refers to her as having, quote, a disease, verse 29 and verse 34. Now the Greek word there in both those places is a word that's commonly translated as, a, as whip, like you'd whip someone with, or a scourge. This isn't, this isn't a head cold. It, it, I mean, not many things that you might have would you describe as a scourge. Well, that's what the Bible that's what the scripture calls her ailment. It's, it's a scourge. So many commentators focus on the aspect of uncleanness. And you know, that, that, there's not without reason for that, right? The whole, the whole context 
from chapter 4 through chapter 5 deals with unclean things. A leper, earlier in, in Mark's gospel, that Jesus cleansed. You remember that, that uh, demoniac in the cemetery, in the tombs. Well, dead people made you unclean. Demons, I dare say, made you unclean. And so blood also was one of the things that the Old Testament specified as making someone unclean. Well, so that there may be something to do with that, uh, although I don't think the uncleanness is really the thing that's at the forefront here uh, in our text. Mark seems to focus our attention by use, using the word like scourge or whip. He focuses our attention on her physical sufferings. Now, those two don't need to exclude one another, right? You can have physical suffering and also have uncleanness. The leper would have been a good example of that earlier in Mark's gospel. He was suffering. He was going to die of his disease, but leprosy kept him away from the temple. It kept him away from the, set, from the synagogue and other places because of his uncleanness. Now, Mark, here in our text, Mark sets the stage for us here, the, kind of the same way he does in the previous text, dealing with that demoniac in the cemetery. Back then in verse 4, what does Mark tell us? He says, no one, dealing with that demon-possessed man, no one had the strength to subdue him. And they, remember, they had tried. They bound him hand and foot with chains and shackles. And what did he do to them? Broke them. Shattered the chains. Must have been an awfully frightening thing to behold. So nothing, no one had the strength to subdue him. And then what happened? Jesus got off that boat just like that. Cast them out into a herd of swine. The swine go over the cliff and die and drown. And the people beg him to stay. No, they beg him to leave, right? They were afraid even more. Well, in the same way with this woman, uh, Mark tells us something similar. In verse 36, he tells us that not only had she suffered for, with that ailment for 12 long years, that he said in verse 35, but also that she had, quote, suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Just as that demoniac, no one could tame him, no one had the strength to subdue him, no doctor had the ability to help this woman. No doctor had the ability to help her. In fact, everything they tried made it worse. If you can imagine the cure being worse than a disease and then not even helping the disease in the first place. So she had tried everything. She had gone to every doctor she knew to go to. Some of the proposed treatments, whatever they were, even made it worse. They caused additional suffering and did no good at all on top of it. She spent all the money that she had just to try to find relief and a cure. How bad would something have to be for you to empty your bank account, to sell whatever you had? She was desperate. She sold. She gave all the money she had and not only did it not help, but it made it, it made it worse. You can imagine what she must have, have felt like. Now, you and I should be careful not to conclude from all this. You know, we, I think we're tempted to think this way in our cynical age. That, well, all the doctors she went to were probably quacks. You know, there's plenty of those around. There probably were back then. They, you know, they, they, saw, they saw a sucker coming from a mile away, gave her all kinds of treatments they knew weren't going to help, and just took all the money they could, and then went to them. When the money ran out, well, sorry, we did all we could. Um, I don't think we're supposed to think that here. I don't think we necessarily need to read this text that that way. You know, Jesus, what does Jesus not do? You know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you need to try this doctor. 
You need, you need to see a different primary care physician. You, know, you need to see a specialist and they'll help you. He, you know, if that was the case, he could have done that. He could have said, you know, there's Dr. So-and-so over here. It's not what he does at all. Well, I think we are to see her disease, whatever it was, as incurable by human means. I think that's the point here in our text. She didn't need a better physician. She needed the great physician. That's why we see what happens in our text. Her disease and her suffering, you know, when we read them, some of you don't need any help being reminded of, of sickness and, and illness and suffering, but they're a reminder of, this, of sin and the effects of sin. I think we're, we're, we too easily forget the connection between those two things. Sin, since the Garden of Eden, has always brought with it suffering and misery. It doesn't mean your own sin. It doesn't mean that you did, you know, if you're sick, you must have done something in particular to bring it on. That's not what we're saying. But all suffering and misery are a result of sin being in the world. All suffering. The Shorter Catechism says, The fall brought mankind into an estate or condition of two things. Sin and misery. They go, they go together. All the suffering and misery in this fallen world can be traced back to one simple thing. And that is sin. Without sin, no misery. Without sin, no suffering. Without sin, no disease, no death, no tears, Nothing of the sort. And how, how much was affected by Adam's fall? Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, it says this. Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly sorry, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The entire universe, the entire created order, fell into sin in Adam's fall. Now, things don't sin. People sin. But the effects of the fall have racked everything. That the earth itself, creation itself, Paul says numerous times in that passage, creation itself suffers and groans right along with us. This is not the way things were supposed to be. And notice he says that we await, eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus didn't just die for your soul. Uh, our, bodies are, our bodies matter to him, as we're going to see in our text. He died to save all of us, body and soul, not just our disembodied souls. Well, all of creation became corrupted because of Adam's fall in the garden. So the fall had cosmic implications. But one day, because of the work of Christ, all things will be made new once again. What does Paul say there at the end of that text? Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's going to be a new heavens and new earth. God is going to make all things new because of the work of Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing we see in our text might seem like an odd thing to, to focus on, but it's the fear of the Lord. Our second point is the fear of the Lord. In verses 27 to 29, Mark says this, She, the woman, had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, said to herself, right, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. 
And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease, healed of her scourge. That as soon as she touched his garment, she was healed. Now think about this. This poor woman, as we said, had had, she had had no hope whatsoever. She was a hopeless case, a lost cause, until what happened? She heard about Jesus. There's an instruction for us there about evangelism as well, right? She heard about Jesus and she went and did something about it. She told herself that if she were even able to touch his, not touch him, maybe her uncleanness, she thought, I better not do that. But if I just touch his garments, I'll be made whole. I'll be healed. So what did she do? She snuck, there's a big crowd following Jesus to Jairus' house. And she sneaks up in the middle of this crowd that was thronging about him and touched his garment and was healed. And, you know, the woman probably thought that if all she did was touch his garment, well, no one's going to notice, right? It wasn't like there was this big gap around Jesus and she would have had to show herself to touch him. You've been in a crowd before. Maybe if you were a kid and trying to see the parade, or, you know, when you were a kid, you had to kind of nudge your way through people. No one, no one's going to notice Something like that. You know, think about the crowd. It says the crowd was pressing upon or thronging Jesus. What does that mean? It means he's being bumped into. He's being jostled around. This isn't a calm, orderly... You know, this isn't marching. Everybody's not in step and keeping from touching one another. Everybody's bumping and jostling and touching him. So why would he notice one person in a crowd touching him? And just touching his garment. Of all, I mean, if she had you know, jabbed him or something, maybe he would notice. She just touches his garment, not himself. And now isn't that exactly what the disciples themselves asked when Jesus asked who had done it? They say in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you. They're saying, you're being contacted quite a bit, right? You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? They're saying, what you should be asking is who didn't touch me? It would be easier to ask who didn't than who did. And yet Jesus noticed didn't he? He knew in himself that power had gone out from him to heal. So what did he do? He stopped. He turned around in the middle of the crowd. I mean, you almost get the feeling people probably walked right into him. He stops. Everybody has to stop. He turns around and he's looking around to see who had touched him. The disciples couldn't believe their ears. Why would Jesus notice somebody touching him in a crowd of people who were touching him? It didn't make any sense. Was it the touch that Jesus noticed? Was it just a physical contact that Jesus noticed? Was he a germaphobe or something? Oh, someone touched me. Stop. Everybody, you know, back off. No, it wasn't the touch alone. It was the touch of faith. Lots of people in that crowd were touching him. It was the touch of faith he noticed. You know, it's one of these themes we're going to see in Mark and we've seen before that, you know, Mark, what does Mark do? The scriptures, they contrast the crowds with those who followed after Jesus uh, you know, the, the crowds followed Christ, physically followed him. But many of those crowds, they didn't believe, did they? They walked along with him, but they really weren't following him, really. Now, what, what does the scripture often contrast that with? The faith of the few. The faith of the few, not just the crowds that followed after him. This crowd may seem better than the crowd we saw in the previous passage. Remember, in, in verses 1 through 20, the, the, the townspeople, the, what did they do? They follow him? No, please get back on your boat and go back from whence you came. You know, please don't stay in our area. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. You know, please, please go 
Please go away. They begged him to leave. Now this crowd's following him. And we're tempted to say to ourselves, oh, this is a much better crowd. This is a much better group of, of people. They're much more noble-minded because uh, they're following after him to see what he's going to do. But in both those situations, both the demoniac in verses 1 through 20 and this passage, what does Mark and what does Jesus focus our attention on? One. One, one person in a crowd. One person who seemed as hopeless and helpless as a person could be and he focuses our attention on that one person and their salvation and not the crowd following out of curiosity. There's a big difference between being part of a curious crowd and being one of the faithful few who look to Christ by faith and are saved. We're not saved by osmosis. We're not saved by being in the crowd of people that follow Christ. We're saved by faith in Christ ourselves. There's a world of difference between bumping into Jesus or rubbing shoulders with him and reaching out to touch him in faith. And that's what our text tells us. Once again, we see Jesus' power being manifested in the saving of sinners. The previous passages, we saw him saving sinners from a storm, from demon possession, and now sickness. And what's, and what's the result once again? Jesus shows his power over all kinds of things. And each one of those passages, what was the reaction to people? Of, of people to it. Fear. Remember? He, he stilled the storm. And what happened to the disciples? They calmed down. They whew. No. Their fear went up. He cast the legion of demons out of that man. And what, what, what was the reaction of the townspeople? Whew. No. The fear went up. Please leave. We don't, we don't want to see you here anymore. Well, he heals this woman. And what happens? We see her response Involve fear. Verse 33, Mark says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. In fear and trembling, told him the whole truth. You know, the fear of the Lord, it's a difficult subject. Many of you have probably wondered at times, uh, you know, how do you describe, if someone were to ask you, explain the fear of the Lord to me, what would you say? It's, it's a difficult concept to understand sometimes or to articulate. And yet I think the scripture over and over again points to the fear of the Lord as one of the hallmarks of true and saving faith. Where there is no fear of the Lord, there is no faith. I think the scripture bears that out without fear of contradiction. You know, it's not without reason that the Bible repeatedly calls upon us to fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, a familiar passage says, The fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of wisdom. The beginning of it. Just coming to fear the Lord is the start of understanding and insight. It says, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Who's the Holy One? Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. No fear of the Lord, no real wisdom at all. Not knowing the Holy One, Jesus Christ, no insight, no understanding. The fear of the Lord that the Scripture repeatedly commends to you and to me, it's not the kind of fear that drives a person away from the Lord in terror like those townspeople in the previous passage back in Mark 5.17. The fear of the Lord that's a hallmark of faith is that which leads one to fall at Jesus' feet, to fall at Jesus' feet in submission, in worship, and in trust. It sounds backwards, but it's, it's really what the Bible talks about. The fear of the Lord is, is not one that drives you away. It's one that makes you come to him. It, it strangely draws you to him, but in reverence, submission, and faith. 
Well, the last thing that brings us to, because of that, is our third and last point. That's the faith, the faith that saves. Now, that woman, just like Jairus before her, in verse 22, what did she do? She fell at his feet, and she told him everything. She confessed to what she had done. He asked, who touched, who touched my garments? Well, it was me. She knew something happened. She knew he meant her. She knew he wasn't just talking about somebody brushing up against him. So she confessed what she did. And as some commentators point out, you know, she, she might have been expecting a rebuke. She might have thought, he's mad. He's angry. She, he's going to give me a reprimand for touching him. I knew I shouldn't have done that. That's what we would think, right? You can forgive her for thinking such a thing. But is that what happens? Does Jesus give her any kind of reprimand whatsoever? No, the exact opposite is what he gives. Verse 34, it says, He said to her, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Be healed of your scourge, is what he told her. Go in peace. There's probably not a more beautiful imperative in all of Scripture than that, those three words. Go in peace. What is, what's he going to want me to do because of what I did? Go in peace. Be healed from your scourge. He even calls her daughter. Remember, it's the same, similar from the same root of the word that Jairus called his daughter. His little daughter, Jesus calls this woman daughter. She's a child of God by faith in him. Now, you know, faith is really what Jesus points her attention to here, and ours, isn't it? This whole thing, we get, we get wrapped up in the miracle, right? Oh, the, wow, the healing, with nothing wrong with that. But he, he points to her, to her faith. She was healed of her scourge of blood. Now, there's no question that it happened when she touched his garment. She knew the moment it happened when she touched his garment that she was, that she was healed. But Mark makes it very clear that when she touched his garment, what does he say? Immediately the flow of blood had dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And yet, how was she healed? How was she healed? And the word for healed there is literally saved. Your faith has saved you, is what the text actually more literally says. Was she saved or healed by incidental contact with Jesus? Was it, was it literally just a physical touch? And anybody who was sick that bumped against him on the road, you know, if they had the flu and they bumped against him, whoa, I feel better. I'm going to rub against him. I'm going to stay with him more, more often. No, you know, um, were, were there other people in that crowd who were ill, who were magically cured of all their ailments and restored to perfect health just by brushing up against Jesus accidentally while traveling with him on the road? No. Are we to imagine everybody in that crowd was of perfect health? There's probably no such thing as a crowd that's all in perfect health. Probably ever, there's, there's people here this morning, some of you don't feel well as it is. It wasn't just brushing up against Jesus that caused healing. He wasn't a lucky rabbit's foot. He wasn't anything like, like that. No, it was her faith. Jesus tells her it was her faith that resulted in her healing. That's another way of saying that Jesus himself healed her. Jesus himself willingly saved her. If she had had the same faith in someone else or anything else, would she have been healed? No. Faith isn't some, you know, it's not faith in faith. Faith is only as good as they say as the object that the faith is placed in or the person 
that that faith is placed in. It was her faith in Christ. She had heard about Jesus, so she went to, by faith, Jesus and sought him out in the first place. It was by her faith in him that she believed that he could heal her. It was by faith that she fell at his feet and confessed the truth of what she had done. She basically, when she fell at Jesus' feet, rather, she confessed her faith in Christ to Christ and did that publicly in front of everybody. So I think one more thing we need to remember from our text and other passages as well is that Jesus doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him by faith for salvation. Plenty of people turn away from Jesus in the Bible. Those crowds that begged him to leave, and he sadly answered their request. Not a prayer you want to have answered. Uh, but Jesus doesn't turn anyone away. You will look, I believe you will look in vain. You can try to prove me wrong. Read your Bibles when you go home today. Try to find a passage where it shows Jesus turning someone away who wants to come to him by faith. You won't find it. You'll see people turn from him. You'll see the rich young ruler who's sad because he had many possessions, right? Who did the turning away? The, the, the rich young ruler did. He goes from good teacher, what, you know, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Follow me. And what does he do? Sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. What does he do? He went away sad. He tried to have both. He didn't want Jesus after all. He wanted to save himself. Jesus turns away no one who comes to him by faith for salvation. Notice in our text, it doesn't really focus too much on it. Jesus doesn't need to operate with a triage mentality. If you've ever been in the medical community, that's one of the things they teach. When I was in the Navy, we did mass casualty drills. And it sounds harsh, but you you did triage. You had to determine, thankfully I never had to actually do this, but you had to figure out very quickly who the lost causes were, who the ones that are, they're not dead yet, but they're basically dead. The ones who, if you don't get to them right now, they're going to die. And the ones who can wait, right? Well, Jesus, you know, humanly speaking, we would have said, Jairus' daughter, everybody else can wait. Jesus doesn't have to do that, as we're going to see next week. Jesus doesn't get to the house and go, you know, I, I, I messed up. I dropped the ball. You know, I, I thought I had to heal her. You know, can't, can't, can't win them all. Sorry, Jairus. No, not, nothing is too big for him. He can heal sickness, and he can overcome death as well. He doesn't need to, to save one at the expense of another. Anyone who comes to him by faith, he will by no means turn away. Jesus is mighty to save all, every last one who will come to him in simple faith. He is the great physician who alone has the power to overcome sickness and death itself. As the Bible says in John 6.37, the one who comes to Jesus, he will by what? He will by no means cast out. By no means cast out. Have you come to Jesus Christ yourself by faith for salvation? Or are you still one of the crowd just kind of going along with everybody and brushing, brushing shoulders with him? Or have you heard about Christ and come to him by faith for salvation? He, the Bible says, is able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to him by faith. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures that show us the power of your Son to save and his great willingness and mercy and kindness in his willingness to save everyone who comes to him 
by faith. We thank you for giving us the grace, each one here this morning who knows you, that uh, we would have been left dead in our sins and unbelief on our own, and yet you quickened us, brought us to life from the dead, worked in us the faith to believe in Christ and come to him in the first place. And we do pray for anybody here this morning who has not yet come to you, who's been content to wander with the crowds, brushing shoulders with Christ, but never touching him by faith, never actually reaching out to him by faith. We pray that you might open their eyes to their hopeless condition in sin, that they might look to Christ by faith and live and be made whole and restored from the scourge of sin. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.